Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, <laughs> as you can most likely tell, I've uh, been kind of taking it easy this summer, and so I haven't been getting these podcasts out as regularly as I'd like to. However, uh, I do want to acknowledge our fellow saloners who either bought one of my books or who made a direct donation to the salon over the past couple of weeks. Uh, I think that I've already sent you a personal note of thanks, but I also want you to know that uh, you're with me here in the salon right now as I record today's podcast. And uh, that includes the young civil rights lawyer who sent a very nice snail mail note. Uh, I really appreciate all of your support. Now, uh, after we listen to today's program, I'll tell you a little something about what I've been reading and uh, thinking these past few weeks. But first, let's get on to with today's show. So uh, here we are, uh, back with some more recordings from the workshop that Bruce Damer and I led at the Esalen Institute this past June. And by now, you're probably wondering why you haven't heard very much from Bruce uh, in the previous two podcasts. Well, uh, there's a good reason for that. You see, uh, Bruce has requested that several of his monologues be strung together into a single podcast. And uh, I'm working on that as I go along. And since I promised Bruce to get his talks out before he leaves for the playa at Burning Man, I, uh, well, I guess I'd better get a move on, as the old timers used to say. <laughs> of course, now that I think about it, I guess maybe I'm an old timer too, huh? <laughs> anyway, uh, to get all of Bruce's pieces edited into a single podcast, I first have to uh, go through the recording of each session and pull those parts out. So, in order to keep from having to go through two edits, uh, what I'm doing is uh, stripping out B Bruce's pieces and then playing for you uh, what's left over, which uh, is a little of Bruce, more of me, and a lot from the participants in the workshop. And after we listen to the part that I'm going to play for you today, uh, it looks like there may be uh, at least one or two more podcasts like this one, and then they'll be followed by the Bruce compilation. Now, as we listen to this next segment, uh, please keep in mind that this is not the complete record of this event, because some of our participants didn't want their comments to be made public here in the salon. And the way we handled that in the workshop is, for those who didn't want to go public with their comments, well, we simply didn't pass them the microphone. And uh, that made it much easier for me to figure out what to eliminate and what to leave in. Uh, however, for the most part, it seems that the uh, majority of participants uh, wanted to go on record with their thoughts, which is uh, what you and I are about to hear in just a moment. So uh, let's now rejoin this workshop for the Saturday afternoon session, which begins with a discussion of the so-called heroic dose, as the Bard McKenna sometimes put it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've all had our share of high-dose heroics in, in the trip reports and stuff like that, but there really is, it's one of the three major factors. You, you know, you have set and setting and you have dosage. The thing is that it's different. We were A lot of us were talking about variations of this at lunchtime. But it's really different, and this is my position, from one individual to another, radically different 
from substance to substance, from day to day, from setting to setting, from relationship to relationship, and and to make these, you know, they're 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 really broad generalities that are are given that I think need close examination. And I personally don't know any other way to examine these these issues other than personally. In other words, your own bioassay, and that's what Sasha, you know, said. And he didn't give anything to anybody else without trying him himself. And you go from a low dose to a high dose. That's one way to do it. But <clears throat> to answer your question about high dose, I've done <clears throat> some very high doses of psilocybin, and you know, for my body weight and all. And um, and you do them for a particular reason, you know, because you go. You know, it's different than doing, uh, you know, a slight microdose. However, that being said, I've found that then sub, once you know that place, this is my experience, and what it's like, then, then lower doses, um, uh, the path has already been opened. Yeah, and, you know, I don't think I've ever heard Terrence say... Uh, I took so much, or, or you know, he he talked about the heroic dose and the the five grams of dried mushrooms in silent darkness, and you know, I never bought that because I always have music, and and I I can't imagine doing mushrooms without music. Although you know, I haven't done them in, in a while, but there was there were a lot of things that Terrence said that uh, didn't quite click with me. Uh, one time I heard him uh, talk and say that, or in a podcast, he said that. Uh, now he was talking about ayahuasca, and he said, oh, the real ayahuasca, it's like tea, real thin. If you get some of that thick, syrupy stuff, it's the wrong kind. It's not the real McCoy. Well, the tradition I've been in, it's like pea soup you can hardly swallow. You know, it's like a real thick and, and you know, watery down. So, uh, and, and even with mushrooms, there's you know, a lot of variety in how, much, how strong the mushrooms are, too. Uh, now, back in the, in the 50s, when they were first doing research with LSD, both up in Canada and at Menlo Park, where they used the same protocols, before, and, and by the way, in Menlo Park, where they did the study, the 350 people about uh, uh, increasing, in, uh, enhancing uh, creativity, uh, those were very low doses. Uh, I, don't, I don't think probably anybody did 200 mics. It was really around 100 mics. But before they gave them that, they had to go through a six-week training course uh, before they got their one dose of 100 mics of acid. And the training included uh, several experiences with, uh, uh, I just said it the other day, with carbogen, yeah. And carbogen is, I think, 75% oxygen, 25% carbon dioxide, I think. Uh, something like that. Uh, John actually has the, the original tank they used, or you, you, <laughs> you, you took a photo. Okay, that's where the photo is on Arrowhead. But uh, they would uh, take that, and it would be like you know three or four minutes of a very. It's like training wheels, and uh, that's what they were doing. Is is they were training people to get into the space to see what it was like, and then the low dose was sufficient. And they had some really astounding results of, uh, like, engineers that had problems they'd been working on for months and couldn't solve, and in an afternoon solved the whole thing. And, and uh, so, it, you know, there are a lot of things that we still don't know about these. And so Terrence's advice about some of this stuff is uh, to be taken uh, kind of like with a grain of salt, I think, maybe. 
I, go ahead, Tom. I'd like to ask a technical question of the room. Um, I've looked around on Arrowwood and stuff, and I haven't really found a good nailed-down answer to this question, which is, uh, you know, sometimes with mushrooms it can come on really strong, and uh, so you don't want, you get kind of scared taking a big dose, but you want to get to that level. So uh, sometimes I'll take like a small dose, get over that hump, and then you feel comfortable, you, you go for more. But it doesn't seem to get to the same place as one big dose. So I was wondering if anybody else had experience with that. Does that first peak, is that as, does it limit you if you start small and add on? Does anyone know? I've never done that. <laughs> but I, I agree with that. I think that doing uh, numerous smaller doses doesn't really, the system doesn't really quite um, respond to it with the amplitude that it otherwise would. There, there can be the initial shock during the first, uh, you know, two hours or hour when the peak comes up. Yeah. How often do you go to the new dose? Well, only after like two hours. So. Psilocybin does have a tolerance buildup. Right, right. Okay. I know with something like MDMA, in, at about the hour, hour and 15 minutes point, you can take a small dose of 2CB. And what that seems to do for a lot of people is not change the experience, but keep the plateau longer. Yeah, that's, that's been uh, my experience with, with mushrooms, is it, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't launch you, you can't launch off to the next level once you've gotten there. Uh, but you can keep it going longer. Yeah, that could uh, be. <laughs> I'm sure that would work. <laughs> in fact, the the my experience with ayahuasca, you know, not in the beginning, but later on, uh, there's there been people in our our group who uh, they all they are interested in is that great light show and all that stuff and. To me, that is the worst part of the experience. It's, to me, it's something to live through. And, and I liken it to going on the uh, uh, Matterhorn ride at Disney World, uh, Disneyland, that when you're waiting in line, you go through all of this little tunnel with all these little nice neon lights and everything, and then you get on the ride. And so I look at the light show that I get in Ayahuasca as, well, I'm going through the tunnel. Okay, I know that I'm high, and now I can get rid of that and get on with the work. And... Uh, a lot of people with, with ayahuasca, once that's over, which is, you know, 45 minutes to an hour or something, and once that's over, they think it's done. The experience is over. And that's really when the experience is starting, because, uh, in my opinion, uh, that's when the work starts and you start you know, hearing the voices and thinking. And uh, my advice to them is if they think they're back to baseline, they should try to stand up without any help. And uh, generally they can't. So... Uh, but, you know, it's, again, like Diana just said, it's so different for everybody. And that's one of the, the difficulties I think uh, we have in talking to other people about it. And uh, one of the, the things that Terrence said that really made a lot of sense to me is that he talked about these, uh, the, when you go to a rave and, and taking substances at a rave. And, and 
And, you know, I've been at a rave and taken MDMA, and it's great to dance on, but he said, if you want to come down from a psychedelic trip, you should get into a loud, noisy environment with a lot of activity, and it'll bring you down quickly. And so all of these uh, people who are going to the big parties and (laughs) taking these substances, uh, you know, who knows what they're doing to themselves because it's not really uh, the way that these substances were used two, three, four thousand years ago, I don't think. And I think that's what part of what this community is doing and, and on a global basis, you know, that uh, we like to, you know, sometimes we say it's so difficult to find the others, to find one or two others, but uh, I haven't checked in over two years, but two years ago, uh, I was getting downloads of my podcast from over a hundred different countries, and even yet today, uh, while I've only had one or two emails from there, uh, China is in the top 10 downloads, uh, which is pretty amazing. And another cra- place I get a lot of downloads is from the dot mill, the military, uh, and from the Middle East. So it's not like we're just a few isolated individuals here in North America. This is a global phenomena that people are really uh, interested in. And uh, that's why I think that, like we were talking last night, that that maybe we should be a little less... Uh, scared to mention this around the water cooler at work and finding ways to do it uh, is the difficult thing but once you break the ice my guess is that one person out of every five or six people you know would be interested in talking about this if you could safely breach it and uh, one way to do is say oh I went to this workshop at Esalen you know and uh, you know I don't know how you feel about this but they're talking about you know, once you get started, you'd be amazed, I think, at how many people uh, will say, oh, you know, back in the 60s I did acid and stuff. And, and now I'm getting hearing from a lot of people that are in their, their 50s and 60s that did, did psychedelics back in the 60s and are now coming back to it, not taking it, but reliving those experiences, trying to talk about what they got out of it. And that's why they're... That's one of the things I think that, that Terrence has helped is, is uh, getting people to get back into uh, the discussion of these things on a, on a rational basis and not uh, just say no and it's going to fry your brain and your chromosomes are going to get messed up and all that stuff because uh, there's so much misinformation out and yet there's so much great information available. I, I don't know if you all go to Arrowid, but uh, E-R-O-W-I-D dot org is the the mother load of information and uh, I always tell uh, young people to write to me and say I've never done such and such and uh, is it safe what should I do and I just say go to Arrowhead and read about the bad trips because you can handle a good trip but if you read about a bad trip and you can't handle that then that's something you shouldn't even think about and so th- that's really a good starting point from my point of view is that uh, you know anybody can uh, have a good time if things work out right but if things aren't working out right, what do you do? How do you handle it? And what's your uh, backup plan? Who's there to support you that's, uh, you know, straight? Oh, Cheryl, did you want to? It, it, briefly, just while we're talking on these kinds of things, I would really be interested in feedback from other people. I find for myself with all psychedelics, while I value the inner experience, physically... My body feels awful. I do not like physiologically the way I feel, and it is a big deterrent. And I'm curious to know if other people find that as well. 
I saw some. I saw some nods. <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. And uh, about 10, 12 years ago, I was involved in a study group that was working its way through the, you know, Sasha's books. We were trying different things every month, and uh, I can't even consider swallowing one of those things anymore. The only thing that I can even consider is is uh, uh, mushrooms and ayahuasca because the chemicals, for some reason, have really started, you know, I, my body does not accept them. And I don't know if that's because I'm getting old or because I'm paying more attention to it. But uh, in any event, I'm, I'm right there with you to where, uh, you know, I have to have a really deep spiritual need <laughs> before I'll even think about it anymore, and just in all honesty. And, but, you know, I've, I feel that I've done enough to really have a lifetime of processing yet to go on. And, and like, uh, I think like Diana said, that a real low dose can really trigger a, a lot of things again. And for me, my, my uh, drug of choice is cannabis. And, and uh, I can and have a little bit of cannabis and get rid of my back pain. Or, you know, some of the new strains, I can have a psychedelic trip. On, a, on a cannabis, but because I know the territory. If you know the territory, you can get there. Tom. Yeah, um, one of the things that, and I, I, I agree that having a wide variety of flavors to choose from is great, uh, but one of the great things about psychedelics is that your, your mind comes up with things you never would have come up with without it. And you learn a lot from that. And uh, also, um, what do you consider the psychedelic state? You know, is it just imagery and visuals, or is it boundary dissolving? I'm no longer here. Uh, I'm the universe, and I'm you. And you know, I think I, it, it goes to so many levels. So a definition of the psychedelic state. Um, so, yeah, keeping it simple, I mean, get started. Uh, have the experience. You're safe. Just tell yourself you're safe. This is You have to allow yourself to go that far, you know, but create that space. And then you will have that experience, and then you can re return to it mentally. You can return to it again if you want to, you know, have you solved something or you've seen something and you want to revisit it, you can do that. Uh, yeah. Down weight. Now, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but I, I was told, again, oh, I was told that I, <clears throat> somewhere I'm in control. And uh, if I need to absolutely be in control, I tested it a couple times, you, I can be. I could have a perfect conversation with a policeman, and and yeah, except that the one time the policeman looked at me and said, "What's your problem, buddy?" I couldn't speak, so I just said, "And this is where I got to that space and realized that that's it. I could only say love, love. It's a whole description of where are you at, buddy. Uh, love." So I, I was there. What a nice place to be. Jeez. I, and the police officer, he said, oh, take care of him. You know, whatever. Take care of him. I thought that was nice, too. Anyway. So that, but I think as a beginner, you know, you guys got to talk to beginners if you want to spread the word. 
Okay. I, I think what we're all pointing out here is that, you know, as, you know, this is a, a we're just reintroducing this state of consciousness to our species after a couple thousand years of it being really repressed. And we're just babes in the woods trying to figure out how to do this. You know, I've, I've just marveled at the fact that here, you know, the, the, the mysteries of Eleusis started back in the, in the Bronze Age, you know, in, in 3000 B.C. And, and how did we get from uh, some hunter-gatherers who started using some form of a psychedelic that induced this consciousness and started creating what is today called Western civilization, loosely described as civilization. And how did we get from the good start to all of a sudden, you know, where we are today where psychedelics are illegal, war on drugs, you know? And I think Richard Glenn Boyer is correct that it's really a war on consciousness. You know, it's a, it's it's a, an attempt to keep new ideas, new thoughts uh, from springing out and changing the status quo because the people that own the status quo don't want to change things. And uh, if, if you look back to a point in time when the mysteries changed in Eleusis is that around 300 B.C. is when the state took control of the mysteries. Up until then, it was more of a priestly kind of thing that, that uh, essentially the philosophers went to and everybody. But once the state could, took control, anybody that hadn't committed murder could go. Even slaves could go. And the, the way the society was formed or, or constituted at the time, there were a few very fabulously wealthy people and then there were their dependents and their court, their hangers-on. There were a small number of prosperous merchants and military people, but the great mass of people were living just above subsistence, and one-half to one-third of the population were slaves. Now, you know, there are several kinds of slaves. There are chattel slaves, where the person is physically owned, and then bond slaves who have to work off a debt. And if you're born in the United States of America, you are born a bond slave because you own you owe a hundred thousand dollars of the national debt. You you have got to work off some your share of the debt. Uh, so we are pretty much like Eleusis when the state took control, and then the the priestly king class uh, essentially uh, changed the mysteries to a point where uh, it, it was uh, really tightly controlled. In fact, the first. Uh, uh, trial for the war on drugs was uh, some of the jet setters of the day started uh, figured out how to do this and they were doing having parties on their own and and uh, there, that's a, a historical record of that so there's to me one of the big mysteries is how did we get from such a good start to the last couple thousand years and, and I think you can see a lot of answers about that and I think that we're in a state now where there are some of us in the world uh, tens of millions, most likely, who have had some sort of a psychedelic experience, uh, certainly who have used at least cannabis, and know that there's some alterations of consciousness other than alcohol. And alcohol is a great drug for the control of people because it's a warlike drug. You, can have, you know, I've, I've never seen people that are stoned on cannabis have fights, uh, except maybe over food. You know, they want somebody to steal your food. But... <laughs> You know they're not they're not aggressive, and the the uh, the ancient civilizations, particularly Rome, was built on aggression. Uh, you know, on war. Uh, this country, 
is in a permanent state of war and has been since the 40s. And that's, you know, we spend more of our, our excess labor, which goes to taxes, more of that goes to the war machine than the entire rest of the world combined. How did we get here? And see, to me, that's one of the reasons I think that they don't really know what psychedelic consciousness is and can do, but they have a, a hunch, and it goes way back in their DNA, that uh, people that use these things uh, weren't warlike. They didn't want to fight. They didn't want to support the machine. They couldn't keep the royalty up there. And so we are, you know, we, well, the, the 60s and the 50s, when, the, when uh, LSD hit the streets and then the mushrooms uh, came out, uh, uh, Wasson found them, and and brought them to the Western world. I mean, they were there for centuries, millennia. The, the role that's going on with all of us right now is we're, we're little children coming down out of the trees, finding the mushrooms and the cow patties and saying, hey, there's something here. But we have to figure out how to use them and how to work them into the rituals. I, sh I shouldn't say we have to, but I, I think it'd be a good idea if we, we tried to do this. And uh, my whole thing with the Psychedelic Salon is not to promote uh, anything more than the ability for somebody at work around the water cooler to talk about these things without fear of getting into trouble. And we are getting a little closer there. Uh, I had a comment to the, the conversation about um, learning the, the yoga, I guess, and not doing substances while, while learning it. Um, I think it, it may simply be a um, uh, kind of a, uh, you know, an ancient wisdom of trying to learn something and master something for itself before you combine it with other, with other things that could uh, distract you from that learning, especially if what you're learning is um, difficult or takes a lot of time. Uh, the, the more you focus simply on it, the more you're able to develop it and learn it for it, and then once you've mastered it, then maybe you can experiment with how you combined it with other things that you've learned. And I think Claudia pointed out to me one of the most important things and the biggest threat to, to young people is the legal establishment, the legal trouble they get in. I got a, a few years ago, I got an email from a young man who, when he was 16, and he was in a very uh, strict Christian family in Kansas, I think, and when he was 16, uh, his, his father caught him growing mushrooms in the bedroom, turned him into the authorities. The kid got convicted of a felony, went to prison uh, to straighten him out, and then he got out of prison after a couple years, and he said, I had been so scared, I just I went started going to church on Wednesday and Sunday and got into the whole thing. He said, I just did everything to conform as best I could, and I didn't even think anymore. And then he found, he found Terrence McKenna and went out and got a job, saved money, and moved out to California. And he's a very happy young man now. But, you know, the, the legal problems are what the real, real danger of drugs is, is the, the, the government problems that you can get into if you're not very careful. And, and as far as putting somebody in a hospital... I think uh, that's one, one place where I think Dennis McKenna owes his, his whole life to Terrence because when Dennis tripped out at La Chirera, 
the rest of the group that they were with were just adamant they were going to fly him to a hospital and, and you know put him in the institution. And Terrence just adamantly said, we're going to wait a week, a month, whatever it takes until he comes down. And that was the right thing to do and kept him in a, a safe place. So, uh, again, we're, we're babes in the woods learning these things, and, and we don't have the right protocols and the right ideas yet. And that's part of why I think that, that those of us who have had some of these experiences and thought about this really have, uh, I don't want to use the word responsibility, but I would hope that we will speak up more and start talking to other people, getting their experiences, and seeing if collectively as a community we can't start coming up with ways to deal with some of these problems uh, uh, and, and finding out what's going on. And then giving these, these, and they don't have to be young people. I've run into a couple people almost my age who had their first psychedelic experience and freaked out, you know. And so it's just that we don't have the right containers. Uh, uh, many of us do. We've been fortunate to fall into the right circumstances to do that. But there's still too much uh, just random use. Here's a pill, take it, see what it does. And, uh, you know, I went through that myself for a while, and it was not a good thing to do. So. That, that kind of goes along with the, you know, stoned ape theory, because I, I always use the, the analogy of discovery of fire. You know, imagine what, what, whatever um, apes or hominids or, you know, when, when that first uh, running into the uh, burning embers of a forest fire, you know, to recover that delicious smelling roast boar, you know, and, and say this might have some use, and then experimenting for however many hundreds or thousands of years and getting burnt a whole lot of times and starting forest fires and everything else. And then all of a sudden, there's something called a campfire, you know, and we start talking story. And and some somewhere in there, but there was an, must have been an awful lot of experimentation that went on, and I think we're doing that same experimentation with the fires of, of the mind, and it's just as crazy, and people doing nutty things, and running in and out of the fire, and you know, and uh, and we're learning, and it'll take time, and and you know, not. I'm not so sure. I think most of the learning is happening in the underground. Uh, I think the science that is being done is fine. It's you know, <clears throat> it's very limited, and it's teaching us a great deal about the brain, but it's not teaching us an awful lot about the mind, and practices and things like that. So. Yeah, I agree. And, and you'd mentioned about uh, the hospital setting for in, in the, the 50s. I, I remember uh, we, we were fortunate to get to meet Duncan Blewett, who worked with Humphrey Osmond up in Canada. And, and since then, I've seen some of the videos on YouTube of this very sterile, and the doctors in their coats, and they have them in a room. And, and uh, that I could see how that really isn't going to produce any real good science, I don't think. And yet there were other uh, research experiments like in Menlo Park where they had a, you know, the living room set up and nature and all. And even uh, when Mary C. and Charlie Grobe were doing the end-of-life psilocybin experience uh, or research, uh, Mary C. went to great lengths to... to you know, draped the, the hospital room and she had flowers and, and nature in there and, you know, it looked like a psychedelic hippies uh, room and so they, they unsterilized it as much as possible and I think that's one of the reasons they had a lot better results than just uh, going in a sterile room. So, this again, the set and the setting uh, that they've been preaching about forever uh, is, is, I think, pretty important. Oh, okay. Got I guess the conversations about your experiences, they're wonderful. And those are the kind, 
let's see, if if you want to talk to a lot of people now, you got to get out of the past and get right where they are and how they're how how they're communicating and tell the story, but simplify it. You don't need all the history stuff. You know, they're just not interested because they don't have time for that. But you want to get it out there and get the, the safety and uns- whatever, describe the good and the bad, etc. But create those spaces that they, we, can go to to find out what we need to find out. There, that whole generation... And, you know, you guys are in it and not and whatever. I'm not, but I kind of have a foot there and I listen to the kids. I have a kid that's 27, so he's speeding around the world. And uh, that's what they're doing. And you want to reach them. And the only way you can reach them, and but they're very curious. They're, so you create spaces for them to go to. And they don't need all the history because that's all scary stuff. Talk about Talk about... What, where they can go with this, what they can do for themselves with this, what's possible. Tell stories. Tell the possibility of a bad trip, because that's what... The, and remove as much as you can of the fear. Remove the fear. Don't create spaces where it's... Where, and perhaps a guide, someone that has used before and is willing to spend uh, eight hours with you and keep you safe and within little rules or something. But anyway... Those things can be described very simply, very quickly, uh, you know, but it seems to me. And if you guys thought about it the way you're thinking about what you're talking about, I know you'd get it. Well, anyway. Uh, uh, your, your point about fear is well taken because that's what is running things right now. That's yes. all you hear is fear of this, yes. fear of that. Not just about psychedelics, the whole planet. Well, and Esalen included. So... Uh, that you can't be in fear and in love at the same time, and there's a lot of that going on. Let us not, uh, let us just uh, move forward without fear. I mean, you guys don't have to fear being arrested. It's bullshit. You can't be arrested for what you're saying on the Internet, as long as you're not telling them psilocybin or something. Tell them where to get, well, I don't know whether you can do that, but, you, but don't be no, so afraid. No, you can't do that. <laughs> Wait a minute, don't be so afraid. Put people out there that are super clean who are at the, they're the first level of defense for you guys, which you're, you're more afraid than they are. So they'll come and they'll be the first defense, meaning they're running the, the, the whatever that site is that you run and get information out there and so on. You, you said that there are already people there that are doing that. Uh, I'm going to look that up too. But anyway, that's, that's my thought. My point is that it's not just us. It's all of us, you know, and that... Uh, you know, it, it, we, it can be something as simple as uh, writing a comment on a web page because one thing that is so different today that's never been in human history before is this interconnectivity of the human species. You know, four billion people that have some sort of connection to the net. And we are, are hardwiring the, the neural system of our species. And so we're at a, in, a, in really brand new times. Guarantee you that this is all. Whoop. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm a little geeky, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, the 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 uh, I agree with you that we have to take fear out of it. But 
And I don't think we need to be talking so much about substances. Uh, it's about the thoughts that come from them. That's the danger to the status quo. It's not, you know, there's no medical danger. I mean, you can talk, there could be some, but on a, on a smaller scale, the big danger to the status quo is, is the thinking, the psychedelic thinking. And, right. you know, when I, when I started this podcast a little over seven years ago, I was uh, shying away from the word psychedelic because it has a lot of baggage. And a, a, a dear friend of ours, Jade, uh, who's gay? He said, "You know, they're going to if you use it the called the entheogen salon or something like that. They'll take that word away from you too." He says, "We took queer back. You got to take psychedelic back." And just the other day, I went to the net and I looked uh, at the word. I, I just typed definition psychedelic. The number one definition came up in a number of search engines. Said something that psychedelic means of, characterized by, or generating hallucinations, distortions of perception, altered states of awareness, and occasionally states resembling psychosis. That is so far from what Humphrey Osman came up with when he said psychedelic means mind manifesting. And that's all it means, is manifesting our own mind outside of the cauldron of the culture that we're in, I think. One more thought. All you need to do there is get yourself a, a, a geek, uh, but a but a present geek, okay, in the present, and uh, and he'll fix that. You need to get up on top of Google. You guys get on top of Google. Put the definition up there and find a way to create yourself to the top of that. That's easy to. I may be naive about all of this, but I think that that's fairly uh, known how to create that. But I think even if, if the definition on Google number one comes up, mind vesting. It's in the culture that we have to read the word at. It's what we can think of already in here. Most people know what it is. You know, I, I'm not trying to convince well, anything, anybody of anything. They, they won't come to you in, unless they're part of the choir. I yeah, and, and so I guarantee I, it. I'm there to just, you know, kind of... Uh, Say, you know, I, and I, I make a, a point, I know some people don't appreciate this, but I think of myself as a carnival barker and all the actions in the tent. You know, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a scholar, I've read a whole bunch of things, I've made connections as weird as Terence has made and as unrational, but my job is to get people in the tent and say, boy, there's some great books, there's some lectures, there's some people you should talk to, and so I try to keep it entertaining and interesting that way, but I'm not going out of the uh, choir. I'm only staying with the choir and talking to them because there's so many people that are so isolated thinking that, you know, I think many of us you know, as teenagers or, or young people, young adults thought, oh, I'm the only one that thinks this way. And, you know, I must be weird. Something wrong with me. And so I'm trying to help people see that uh, there's a lot of us uh, oddballs around. Excuse me. Are you... Are you talking about using the internet that way, or are you talking about you two on the road? No, no, no. I, I'm, I. This, actually, this may be my last personal appearance because I don't like going on the road. So I, it's only on the internet. But over the last oh, seven great, years, great. over a million people have downloaded at least one of my podcasts. There so you go. that's that's how I'm doing it, and well, that's how I'm comfortable doing it, and, and letting them come to me in this keep word it of up. mouth. That's it. Does, does anybody have something they would like to uh, pick up with now before we uh, kind of plant a few other seeds? We've, we've lost a few of the less hardy of our souls. So, uh. More sensible of our souls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
So uh, going back to your uh, occupied movement at the beginning, if I uh, re recall that uh, that was the beginning of your conversation, I think uh, uh, we are sitting, uh, as I said in the morning, uh, with tension growing between the haves and have-nots, and basically a, a very systemic oppression of of uh, uh, people rising up, and and we've seen last year uh, in in the less free countries the pressure came to boil and things have changed. And I recall I've been I've been coming here this year almost like uh, part time. I mean half of this year I spent here, so I've been through a lot of workshop, including one with uh, SNN friends, where Michael Murphy himself was over there, and trying to um, uh, create the future of SNN, uh, as well as relating to what happens in the world right now, and how we can help. And in some other meeting, I asked Mr. Wheeler if, if he sees the future of the United States uh, as an evolution or as a revolution, because we see that in other parts of the world, revolution happens, and as a result, there is a chaos and the unknowing that comes after the revolution. We don't know who replaces the old regime and how it progresses to something new and better. And, and, you know, over the course of the time I've been here, I've done some writing and some thinking about the Occupy movement and, and whatnot, and... I think the core, core issue of our society is the banking system, because the money gets created out of nothing by some private individuals or private institutions, and then they create whatever they create in order to protect their turf, and they think they know better uh, what's good for the world, and they're talking right now, the world governor, governments and all of that. And, and if one wants to think about an evolution into a new things, another revolution, trying, attempting not to snap the, the tape, it would have to be a parallel system of money. You know, I, I called it, uh, I actually did some writing about it, and I called the first bank, then give credit, let's say, based on certain criteria, other than the criteria that right now you get at the bank, I call it bypass bank. In other words, to bypass the federal system and create a credit system, uh, at least in places like SLN, where people basically barter and attempt to as much as possible not, not to use the currency. Uh, some of that is happening here with the World Scholar coming here, offering 32 hours of work and studying. And, 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 and I just wonder if, if an institution like this, where there is really integrity and trust uh, between the people that are coming in, in an institution like that, if they could exaggerate and, and just do more of that and use less of uh, the currencies. 
that is created by the banking system. And uh, um, I think in a place like this is entirely possible because they grow their own food and of course they have insurance and those kind of things. So going back to the Occupy movement, Occupy movement needs a purpose, a slogan. And the very first thing that is wrong with the society, the very first thing, the core thing, the seed of the seeds, is the banking system. And the Federal Reserve, which needs to be abolished because it, it really is a private bank printing money on behalf of the American consumer and using it however they want. And this $50 trillion that we owe, which you suggested translate to each one of us owing before we were born $100,000 or $200,000 per person, I mean, why not some of that credit be given to the people? So the Occupy movement can rise to change the credit system and to create a parallel. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now I'm cutting into the workshop recording right here so that I can add my own brief comments about what was just said regarding the establishment of a new system of money. And I'll begin by saying that I don't actually have any ideas about how to do this or even if it's possible. Nonetheless, I think this is a good direction in which to proceed. Now, the way I see it, the only way we humans are ever going to be able to break the chains that have been forged for us by the financial elite is to first, uh, somehow, wrestle away the food supply from its connection to money. Let's face it, without money to buy food, most of us would probably starve. And uh, that is why I think that the fast-growing home garden movements in the U.S. and other countries are perhaps some of the most important efforts that are taking place in our societies today. My guess is that uh, any new form of money will uh, probably have to grow uh, organically somehow from the various ways in which these home gardeners uh, find to exchange their surplus food for things other than the kind of money that we are currently stuck with. Let's face it, uh, the people at the top of this current system have been there for several thousand years, and the chances of us changing that during our lifetimes is, well, negligible. So, it seems to me that the only way to eliminate the power that their huge piles of money have over us is for us to remove the need for their money from our lives. And, of course, that has to begin with the control of the food supply. Now, what has been occupying most of my time lately uh, is my very pleasurable hobby of reading. And ever since I got my Kindle, uh, I've been reading almost constantly. And what I've been doing is uh, I start at the beginning of uh, some award lists like the Pulitzer Prizes, and then I downloaded copies of the award-winning books that interest me and which are still available for free from places like Project Gutenberg uh, or uh, not to mention the almost one million free Kindle books that Amazon and others have made available. And one of these free books that I recently read has a brief metaphor about the rich and poor, or uh, let's say about the 1% and the 99% in today's language. And the book I want to read uh, this short piece from is by Edward Bellamy, and it's titled Looking Backward, 2000 to 1887. And it was actually written and published in 1887. Uh, and actually the 
parts he talks about uh, the year 2000 were uh, pretty utopian. <laughs> we're not even close to there. But uh, at the time he wrote the book, of course, there were no automobiles, and in fact only a very few people even had a horse-drawn vehicle of any kind. Uh, carriages were only for the rich. But since most everyone in the U.S. has seen a few of what we call Western or cowboy movies, we all know what a stagecoach looked like. And uh, so this little metaphor should still be understandable. Uh, anyhow, here's how it goes. And uh, what he's talking about is he's talking from the position of the year 2000, looking back at the year 1887 and how society was composed back then, which uh, really isn't any different than it is right now. But uh, here's what he says from uh, his uh, fictional standpoint of the year 2000, looking back to 1887. I cannot do better than to compare society as it was then to a prodigious coach which the masses of humanity were harnessed to and dragged toilsomely along the very hilly and sandy road. The driver was hunger and permitted no lagging, though the pace was necessarily very slow. Despite the difficulty of drawing the coach at all along so hard a road, the top was covered with passengers who never got down, even at the steepest ascents. These seats on top were very breezy and comfortable. Well up out of the dust, their occupants could enjoy the scenery at their leisure or critically discuss the merits of the straining team. Naturally, such places were in great demand and the competition for them was keen, everyone seeking as the first end in life to secure a seat on the coach for himself and leave it to his child after him. By the rule of the coach, a man could leave his seat to whom he wished. But on the other hand, there were many accidents by which it might at any time be wholly lost. For all that they were so easy, the seats were very insecure, and at every sudden jolt of the coach, persons were slipping out of them and falling to the ground, where they were instantly compelled to take hold of the rope and help to drag the coach on which they had before ridden so pleasantly. It was naturally regarded as a terrible misfortune to lose one's seat, and the apprehension that this might happen to them or their friends was a constant cloud upon the happiness of those who rode. Well, uh, I think that pretty much sums up the human experience as it now stands. Even those riding on the top of the coach are living under a constant cloud upon their happiness. And as the great Gildersleeve once said, what a revolting development this is. You know, let's face it, if 10,000 people working together in over a hundred locations over the course of a decade or more can design and build an extremely complex robot and then have it successfully land on a distant planet to begin exploring that other world, well doesn't it follow that we humans can also probably solve the problem of distributing our food and other resources among us in a way that uh, enables everyone on the planet to have an enjoyable and a peaceful life? We don't lack the resources or the technology. As I see it, we only lack the common will to do so. It's uh, really something worth thinking about. Don't you agree? And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>